0: It does feel it does feel reminiscent of days gone by there 's too many gaps in the room between the chairs and we 're still separated because we need to be but isn 't it a wonderful beginning and um, it 's wonderful to be able to gather in this place as we are and to worship him and to pray, and, and, and to cry that, that that cry that, that Martin just prayed, Lord, that you would do what needs to be done in me, that I might become, that all you want me to be, that you will be able to be who you want to be through us to this world around us, that regardless of what's happening in this world, regardless of how scared may people may be or, or how relaxed people may be right now, it doesn't matter. We want to be the body of Christ. We want to be the people of God to the world around us. That's the thing that remains the same, isn't it? That's the constant. That's the unchanging truth. Truth. There is a God in heaven who sits upon the throne, and he is Lord, and he is sovereign over all things, and we are his children, Amen. here for his purpose. What a glorious thing it is, and certainly that purpose in the way that it has been done of late has changed, but yeah, we're excited, we really are excited. Things are changing as we begin to move back to the normality, who knows what that is, of what church is going to be, but... Um, But it's wonderful, as of next week, as I'm sure you all know, um, according to our government's opening up uh, to the next stage, we are allowed to gather in groups of 100 people. Um, Certainly, we need to still be observing the social distancing laws, which means we can't actually put 100 people in this room. Um, uh, So, as a church, uh, we are, I think it was mentioned earlier, Uh, Beginning next week we will be gathering and you're all invited. Um, uh, Certainly we're going to go through, is it the same registration process as you've had to this week online, but we're going to start next week and we're going to be uh, beginning with two services to be able to get, you know, as many of us that can be together fellowshipping. And worshipping God. And so the first service is going to be at 9 o'clock. And the second service is going to be at 11 o'clock. They're going to be identical. And so we encourage you to um, think about and pray about when you can be a part of the, of the fellowship. We need to get back together. We need to be in this place encouraging one another. We need to be the light that God wants us to be and we can't do it alone. We cannot do it alone. And so next week, let's, let's, let's see how this begins. It's gonna be, be a learning curve for us. You know, as a church for some time now, we have been toying with, not toying with, actually praying with the, um, the next step for us as a congregation and that is going to multiple services to give us room to grow. And of course now, through these new regulations, that in a sense has been forced upon us. And so, and so we're excited about it as it prepares us for the future as a congregation. It prepares us um, for uh, the, the new growth that we believe God's going to bring us as we as a church have set ourselves apart uh, to seek him and to grow in him, to be made alive by him and to be that light in this world. And that means... And that means opportunities for ministry and service are just going to grow. And so if you are a part of a ministry team um, uh, serving in this church, please contact your ministry leader. Please contact them and they will be in contact with you if they haven't already been in contact with you. But obviously there are going to be more opportunities to serve. And so we encourage you to to be praying about, um, about where God would have you. Because we're all called to be ministers, we're all called to be servants in this place, and and you you know you may be you may be sitting there or have been sitting there for some time, just wondering where it is God would have me ministering and serving in the body of Christ. Well, let me just tell you, the opportunity's just doubled, and um, so pray about that, and let's see what what um, God will do in us and through us. Um, what else do I need to let you know regarding the restrictions easing? Um, so again, social distancing, so on. I will have, just for us here this morning, um, we, the coffee, tea um, facilities are certainly here, but we can't make them ourselves. And so that is something that we uh, are, that's gonna be another ministry that's developing as um, we have somebody um, serving you with that part of, uh, that part of our worship, um, uh, the, the greeting ministry, again, the cafe ministry, so many opportunities, and certainly the children 's ministry uh, are things that are going to be expanding as the church uh, uh, ministers the way that we 've been required to minister now. Are you excited? Yes. I really am. I, I really, really am. So um, I think that's all I need to bring to you at the moment. Watch online on the website and the Facebook uh, this week, and uh, information will be coming out that uh, that needs to be that needs to be um, added during the week. And if you've got any questions. You know, give Steve a call, give Marty a call, give myself a call, give Jim a call, give Russ a call. We've all got some of those numbers. Um, And uh, we will um, see what this next step is. I'm just really excited to see so many faces in front of me. Uh, I really am, it's really precious. And it's good to be back, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's still a little bit of an echo in the room, but we can, uh, we can, we can fill that out next week. That echo is going—it's going to be great. It's God's God is always working. God is always building His church, isn't He? All right, let's um, let's continue in our worship by gathering together around His precious Word um, <clears throat> this morning. We started last week actually... Oh, it's not up there. We started last week uh, with a new series on the back of the previous series. We spent six weeks looking at what it... uh What it is to you know to live again, to to experience God's reviving life, uh, life within ourselves, to become those people alive, those people that have been awakened, those people that are aware that God is present, those people are just knowing that God is wanting to do so. This just to be alive, and now and we're transitioning now into um, a new series for the next few weeks. We're going to talk about. Um, church, a church that is alive or church alive, what it is and how that, how that looks uh, in light of the things we've been considering. And so I warned you last week, based upon our uh, what we've been talking about over the last six weeks, I want to ask you the same questions this week that I asked you last week. And that is first, do you know whose child you are? Do you? Child of the living God. Do you know that you are a child of the God of truth? A child of the God of truth who has come into this world, manifest himself through his son in this world and has made a way for us to come into relationship with a holy God. And we've been given the truth of God. He has come to lead us into all truth. He's come to sanctify us and set us apart by his truth. Is that who we are? That's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ, a praying church. That we are a praying church, that we, that we humble ourselves, that we come before him, that we acknowledge that we have an absolute and complete dependence upon him to earnestly, to wholeheartedly desire his presence, his purpose and his blessing for all things that we do, for all of our lives. And are we a people, this is the question, are we a people that allow the searching of God's spirit To expose the sinfulness that's in the heart of man, even within ourselves, to allow God to bring us to that place of confession that we might seek that dependence upon him, knowing that restoration is always before us. If we would just give ourselves to the work of his spirit to cleanse us and forgive us and restore us and build us up in this wonderful faith as we hunger after him, as we hunger after righteousness, as we hunger for him in his word, longing for its illumination in our souls. Is this who we are? Because this is what it is to be alive. And that gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice, the great gospel message that saves, transforms and glorifies sinful man is the most important message to mankind. This is what it is to be alive. This is what it is to be a Christian. It's to be dissatisfied with complacent, with a complacent so-called spirituality that produces no living for Christ. We've got to be honest and we've got to ask ourselves, are we living for Christ? Are we finished with careless living? Are we finished with a shallow, superficial faith that has no influence in our lives outside the four walls of our church? The question is, are we ready and willing, we are coming back together, church. And are we ready? And are we willing to exchange that self-indulgent, self-denial, self? No, are we ready to exchange that self-indulgence for a self-denying, transforming Christianity? Because that's what it is to live again. And we want to know what that looks like inside or when it looks like as a church that is alive of living breathers that have been awoken from the slumber we're coming back together and so this morning as we continue I just want to I want to do something really simple this morning really really simple and it begins with a birth announcement first excuse me And by the way, this could be the last long message you'll ever hear from me. <laughs> I'm going to have to be a whole lot more disciplined when we come back into the second. We come to the second and third services. Um, something really simple it starts with a birth announcement. It goes like this: Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been crucified. He was taken down from the cross and he was laid in the tomb of a man by the name of Nicodemus. Three days later, he arose from the grave and he began to appear to first the women, then to his disciples and then to other followers, numerous in number. And for the next 40 days after his resurrection, he taught them truths that were pertaining to the kingdom. He taught them from the scriptures. He taught them from the Hebrew prophecies, the ancient prophecies, and he spoke that and he said how they spoke of him and what he would achieve through his life, death, and resurrection. It says in Luke's gospel, oh, quickly, will you turn to Luke's gospel with me? And says uh, in chapter twenty-four, as Luke brings his gospel to a conclusion. This is it says in verse all forty-four, let's pick it up there. It says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, "Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in the name in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things," he said. Yes, he opened up their eyes. To understanding of those ancient prophecies that spoke about who he really was and what he would achieve. But they weren't absolutely sure about everything at that stage, but they were absolutely sure about one thing, and no doubt the most important thing, and that is that Christ had conquered death, and that he had reconciled them unto God. And just before he ascended to heaven, he said in that next verse, now in verse 49 of that passage, he said, Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endured with power from on high. It was his promise to send the Holy Spirit who would lead and empower them to guide people into a living relationship with God through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And 10 days later, 10 days later after he said those words, there they were, gathered in Jerusalem as he had commanded them to do so. And now there's about 120 of them. There's 120 of them together in the room, in a room in Jerusalem, near the temple. It was the Jewish feast day of Pentecost. And thousands of Jews have come from all over the Hebrew world to gather to celebrate it. And suddenly it happened. Suddenly it happened. The Holy Spirit came and the church of Jesus Christ lived. That's the birth I'm talking about. And the church of Jesus Christ lived. We don't know exactly. It was probably late in May, somewhere around 30 AD. And it was a birth that was witnessed by thousands. God made sure of that. It was a birth that was witnessed by thousands. It was a birth that was marked by supernatural signs. And it was a birth that was marked by powerful, Holy Spirit-inspired preaching. And the overwhelming response... To the gospel, seeing thousands of people coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, the church was alive. It was living. The life-giving Spirit of God had come down to dwell, to indwell the followers of Jesus. Do you remember the night? If we just go back, the night of his arrest... Jesus was somewhat cryptically speaking when he told them in John 14, if you quick, turn there. But when he, yes, it was. He, was, he had said a lot of things that night in that upper room, we call it the night of the Last Supper. But he was somewhat amongst all of the things that he told them and taught them. He somewhat cryptically spoke to them about the fact that the helper would abide with them forever. John chapter 14, that helper being, he said in verse 17, the spirit of truth. He said, whom the world cannot know or cannot receive, sorry, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him and please notice this, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He said in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Please listen to this, these words of Jesus. Verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. What does he say? Because I live, you also will live at that day. You will know that I am in my father and you, believer, are in me and I am in you, believer. Again, it is a somewhat cryptic, isn't it? He cryptically is describing what every blood washed, every blood brought child of God will experience. And that is the indwelling of the father and the son by the spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He continues stay in that passage he continues saying verse 21 he who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and manifest myself to him now it says judas not iscariot said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? That's a question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to this world? And Jesus answered to him and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And this is how he will manifest himself to the world. And my father and, and will love him and we will come to him. We, that is me and my father, will come to him. That is he that loves him. And make our home with him. Did you hear that? It's incredible, isn't it? The creator of heaven and earth is making a home within his people. Oh, it's almost a cliche saying, isn't it? We say God lives within us. Oh, it's no cliche. This is reality. He lives within us. You and I have to realise something this morning, that the church of Jesus Christ, this birth that I've been describing, is the consummation of God's eternal plan to dwell amongst his people on this earth. And let us not fail to understand that as his creation, created in his image, Our creative purpose is to dwell with him and to glorify him as God. Or here, as as Jesus is saying, that he would dwell within us and we will glorify him as God to this world. Here's a quote. Piper says this. It is inconceivable that for his glory would mean that he created the world for his glory not to be known or to be known as something less valuable than it is and it is inconceivable For his glory, that his glory would mean he created the world so that people would find his glory boring or dissatisfying or something less than the all satisfying beauty that it is in its, its, and it is inconceivable that for his glory would mean... That our knowledge, the treasure and enjoying the pleasure should be hidden from others around us. Therefore, the universe exists to communicate the glory of God for man to know and enjoy and show as the supreme treasure and pleasure in our lives. What is Mr. Piper saying? He is saying this. It is ridiculous to think that the glory of God's creation was brought into existence With no other purpose other than to simply exist. Thank you for those lights. Let me say that again. He was saying, and I believe rightly so, it is ridiculous to think. That the glory of creation was brought into existence for no other purpose than to simply exist or to be overlooked or to be dismissed or to be replaced with some other thought process or some other thinking. No, we see clearly expressed in the pages of scripture that we are created to know God, to be with God, but also to worship God, to extol his glory. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. And you see it throughout the pages of Scripture, nowhere greater than in the Psalms, right? Let me read some of this to you from Psalm chapter 57. It says in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He goes on to say, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Do you hear the heart of the psalmist? He says in verse 10 and verse 11, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, that your glory be over all of the earth. And of course, we all know Psalm 19 it says in verse 1 through 4, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims its handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The creation itself is glorifying the creator. And then the psalmist again, Psalm 148 Let me read the first six verses. It says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from heavens. Praise him in the heights. Notice where the praise is. It's from everywhere. Praise him, all the angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for his commandments and they were created and he established them forever and ever and gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And verse 70 says, praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all of the deep. And verse 9, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all setters. And verse 10, beast, beast and all livestock, creeping thing and flying thing. And verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord for the name. His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Do you get the sense of it? And we get into the heavenly realms. We see in Revelation chapter 4. And we see this glimpse of the redeemed, I believe it's you and me, crying out, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created and we see that reflected throughout the pages of scripture. We were created to know him. We were created to worship him, to extol his glory. And again, we see it everywhere in God's communication, in God's heart towards his creation. And so we see, if we go right back to the very beginning, we go back to the garden, and who knows how long man existed within the garden. We don't know. But what we see is God dwelling with his creature. His creation. We see God dwelling with His creation in Eden. And I can only imagine what that was. How that communication, how that fellowship, how the satisfaction that existed between God and His creation. And how Adam and Eve glorified him and extolled his glory in all that they said and all that they did. And everything about their existence was to bring praise and honour to the name of the one who had created them. I can only imagine how that was. I believe I will know it. I believe you will know it. What an exciting thought, don't you think? What an exciting thought. And that is what it was until man... Willfully, And now the whole tenor changes, doesn't it? And that was until man willfully embraced sin, separating himself from his holy God and then began to seek his own glory. And in that instant, in that instant of rebellion, Mankind became what the Apostle Paul would later describe as children of wrath. Everything's changed, hasn't it? Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 1, And you he made alive. We love that, right? He says, you he made alive. But he says, who were? Dead in trespasses and sin. He said, And you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here it is, and were by very nature children of wrath, just as the others. You know what this is? This is the Apostle Paul being brutally honest. This is God being brutally honest. It's his brutal, honest description of fallen man. Let me tell you, fallen man doesn't like to hear this. Fallen man does not like to hear this. This is not saying... If fallen man will do bad things, then God's wrath will come upon him. This is not what this is saying. You see, more fallen man, this world around us, thinks that he's doing okay. And if God, if they choose to believe that he is there, it's not a God that's going to punish them. No, that's not what's being discussed here. That's not the point at all. This is no discussion. What is being declared here is that fallen man, let me say this, is, please hear this, fallen man is a child of wrath by their very nature. By nature, separated from God, man is absorbed with self and willfully turns towards sin. And what I mean is this. By nature, separated from God, man is trying to be his own God. He's doing life his own way. He's seeking his own glory. Apart from his creative purpose. Seeking his own glory. By nature, separated from God, man is under the wrath of God. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, one of the most precious passages in the Bible, records these words in the last verses. He says, the Father loves the Son. This is John 3.35. He says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. He says, he who believes the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. What? But the wrath of God abides upon him. Again, fallen man reasons out. Well, that's not how I think about God. Again, fallen man reasons out. There is other ways to think about life. And fallen man reasons and reasons. No, again, there is no reasoning here. It's not saying if you reject Jesus Christ, God's wrath will come upon you. It's saying if you reject Jesus Christ, you need to know that God's God's wrath is already resting on you. It's already abiding upon you. It's already there. But fallen man doesn't know it, but they are children of wrath. Because the wrath of God is fallen, is resting upon them. Look, our world out there is a bit like this. Our world out there is, is there's the okay, there's the good, there's the bad, and there's the terrible. Right? Let me say it again. There's the okay. There's the there's the there's the okay. There's the good. There's the bad, and there's the terrible. And most people out there. Most citizens of this planet are trying their very best, at least not to be the terrible, right? And they're hard at work at becoming good people. But the reality is, it doesn't matter how good a person becomes, because there is a looming problem that cannot be fixed by our behaviour. Every one of us is born already ruined. Cold, Stone cold dead as we stepped out of the womb. It was written, born children of wrath with a fallen nature. It happened in the garden when our federal head Adam chose to sin, and everyone born of Adam received what Adam, only what Adam had to give, a nature under wrath. And if nothing changes, every man is born with a destiny separated from God. Now, please, I want you to stay with me. I'm taking my time here this morning with this very simple truth. But I want you to stay with me because understanding this is what makes God so gloriously wonderful. You know that? Understanding this or understanding that mankind is under the wrath of God, destined for hell, is what enables us to fulfill our creative purpose to dwell with him and glorify him as God. Now you think, Chris, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. Oh, yeah, it does. Oh, yes, it really does. Because you see, the moment mankind fell, in that instant when the creation became children of wrath, God immediately began to speak about his intention to redeem us from our fallenness back into a right or a righteous relationship with him. And please understand me, it was his intention or the intention of God that he had determined in eternity past, even before man was created. Please understand this. Something God always knew that he would have to do for us. And this is where our understanding of the wrath of God becomes a truly glorious thing. Not the wrath in and of itself, but the reality of the wrath and what it does within the heart of God or what it always did within the heart of God in that God always intended knowing that he was the only one that could do something about it. Forget about the okay, the good, the bad, or the terrible. There is no one born into this world other than Jesus Christ Himself who could do something about it. No one. It is something that God Himself always knew that He Himself would have to do for you. Do you hear that? It was something that God himself always knew that he himself would have to do for you. Let me give you a picture. Children of Israel, God's chosen people, the Hebrew people that God had set apart. They had lived with the promise of God, and the hope of God, since God made covenant with Abraham, God called Abraham out and, and, and speaking into his heart, and, and how God spoke and revealed himself again it is not known unto us, but God spoke to this great man of Abraham, called him out of a land of pagan worship, Ur of the Chaldees, and spoke to him and said, I am going to make you a great nation. And from that great nation, the entire world is going to be blessed. Ultimately, that God's deliverer is going to come through this nation. And that nation was born through the 12 sons of Abraham's grandson, Jacob. We know the story. I'm skipping right along. They had been in Egypt for generations. They had been growing. They went into Egypt to 72 people. And now they've been in there for generations. Yes, as slaves, but in there for generations. But now there's millions of them. Now there's millions of them. The nation has grown. And the day came when God raised up a man called Moses. We know the story. We've seen the movie. Hopefully we've read his book. Because the movie doesn't get it right. A man named Moses would lead them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and brought them to a mountain a mountain called Sinai what an awesome thing this is, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 19 and on from there they came, can you see this nation two million plus people moving through the land and they come to the lower end of the mountain the Bible tells us and God came down The presence of God came down upon Sinai. It says there that Sinai was completely covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. I want you to try and imagine this. It descended on it in fire and its smoke went up like a smoke of a great furnace and the whole mountain shook greatly. Everything was burning. Everything was on fire. It was was encased in this dark, dark cloud and everything shook. Everything shook. (laughs) choke but then the voice of God came from the presence of that choking of that choke the, the presence, the voice of God spoke summoning Moses into the mountain but summoning Moses into the mountain with a warning and the warning was People must not approach. They cannot come into his presence. Lest they perish, it says. You know what it says? It says, and the people said yes. And they kept their distance. But Moses drew near. Can you see this man? And it says Drozes, Drozes, It said Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Oh my, we know the story, don't we? Moses, in some supernatural way, shielded from the very glory of God, was able to enter into that mountain and receive God's law from his people. But still, still the very awesomeness of the unapproachable presence of God was manifest. And the Bible describes those people who couldn't come near them as a stiff-necked, sinful people who could not approach... And the question remained, this was a holy God who had come down in just an essence or a sense of his glory. If God literally came down, it's all over. We don't exist anymore. His glory, his holiness would consume sinful creation. But in a sense, to some degree, his glory, his holiness came down and the question remained and the question was being answered on this mountain. it really was, how could a holy God dwell in their midst of these people? And the answer was found, and I'll say it again, only in what God himself knew that he himself would have to do for us. And so in that mountain, God gave his law. And in that law, he gave instructions that related to his holiness, to his holy nature. And he said to mankind, as long as you obey this, as long as you can do this, as long as you can be holy, even as I am holy. But God knew that man was sinful, God knew that man had a sinful nature. That's why they were stiff necked and sinful, like every one of us in this world, born into this world. He knew that. And so the first thing he did was he brings his law, but recognizing that man is sinful and man has a fallen nature, he then recognizing they cannot keep that law, and so then he gives us a sacrificial system. He gave them a sacrificial system whereby men might be able to offer sacrifice to atone for their sin in the sense of just covering their sin, but connected with that sacrificial system, there are all sorts of boundaries. You can only come this close. And the priesthood was established. And the presence of God dwelt in the very heart of that nation. And in the temple was the holy of holies, the most holy place, where the Shekinah glory of God's presence was there. Go and read those chapters in Exodus and see that separation that existed. Those boundaries are there to keep sinful man away from a holy God lest they be destroyed. It was his love, wasn't it? It was his grace. And so he gave this system... That man's sins could be covered until. Until when? Until what? Until God did the next thing. Until God did the next thing. The thing that God himself, I wanted to repeat this over and over again this morning. Until God himself did the thing that he always knew that he himself, only he himself could do for you. And so we jump forward into the New Testament. We find ourselves in that wonderful book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, let me just read this to you. And it says in verse 21, this is the next thing. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation. That means that Christ met the just requirements of a holy law. He was paying a price. He was redeeming us. Whom God sent forth as a propitiation. How? By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just. That is, God might be just, and at the same time, the justifier of who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean? It means sin is sin, and right is right, and God is just. And there can be no mercy unless there is justice, because God is just, which means sin must be punished. There can be no mercy, I say it again, apart from justice. So God himself took upon himself the punishment of man's sin in the person of Christ, forgiving man's sin and giving him his righteousness and giving his righteousness to all those that would accept the Saviour in faith. You know, 749 years before this, Isaiah the prophet spoke those words that we all know so very well, right? 749 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah 53, these are so well-known words, it says, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him, Please hear this. He is despised and he's rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. he is acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. For we are all like sheep that have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us. 700 years later, down by the Jordan, John the Baptist will be baptizing. And he will see one in the crowd. And John will raise his hand, point his finger, and he will say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. This is what it's all been about. There he is, John was saying. There's the sin bearer. That's who he is. He bore sin. And he died for sinners upon the cross. How? By absorbing the very wrath of God that was upon all of us. He entered into all that hell is so that we who place our faith in him will never have to. Isaiah was describing someone who was rejected on earth. Not only on earth, but also rejected by heaven itself and plunged into the very depths of hell. He he bore the divine wrath for me. And you need to be able to say that. For you. And you go back to the garden and you see God entering into the garden. He's saying, Adam, where are you? What have you done to yourself? And you can see the heart of God acknowledging what it always had known that he was about to do himself what only he himself could do for his creation. That's the gospel. That's what makes us alive. And I've taken the time this morning to share this with you because we wanna see what, we wanna know what it is to be alive. To know that the wrath of God has been lifted through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how our life centred, or, or the gospel being the centre of our lives, how does that change things for us? What do we look like? How do we respond? How do we react? Because if we're honest, all those things I've said this morning, I don't know how many of us are sitting here going, yeah, I've heard all this before. Yeah, that's filed away in my information bank. Yeah, I know that's how I become a Christian case I'm so sad why isn't it moving me why isn't it shaping me why isn't everything that I do reflective of the reality that this is what God has done it's made me alive Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 these familiar verses, he said in verse one through four, more over brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Please hear it, by which you also are saved. And if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of." All that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day. How? According to the Scriptures. Peter would say, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24, who himself Christ bore our sins in his body upon the tree, that we having died to sin, what we might now live for righteousness, by whom stripes we whose stripes we have been healed. 1 Thessalonians, we know these verses. Says in chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep we should do what? That we should, this is where we started this morning, that we should live together with him. And I love what Paul said again in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, chapter 2 and verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What have we been given, people, that only God could give us? Raised from spiritual death and given the gift of faith, given eternal life, given forgiveness of sins, justification. It's how God sees you now, Justified. Perfect, holy in his sight. You've been given peace with God. How does that affect your life? There was a time when everything about you was warring against the righteousness of God, but now you're at peace with God. There's no enmity between you and the creator of heaven and earth. We've placed, we've dropped our weapons, and we've surrendered before him because we have escaped hell. We've escaped hell. Oh, we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and we have received the very presence of the living God. The question I want to ask you this week and over the next few weeks is how does this shape our lives? What does a church life really look like? You see, the gospel is not just a door. It's not just a door that saves people, whereby we then file away the information that we can tell others about how we got saved. It's not just a door that saves people. See, so often people treat our faith like this and that we then, we get saved, the gospel, we come to, with forgiveness and we ask the Lord to forgive us and we enter in and then we go and seek to build our spirituality on other things. And I tell you what, the church is just full of other things that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, the gospel is the door that opens us up to an ever deepening understanding of God's holiness. Of God's holiness. And what it is to live in light of that holiness while at the very same time exposing the depth of my own sinfulness and the ever deeper need, the deepening need of sanctification. It just grows and it just grows and it just grows. And the cross of Jesus Christ looms larger and larger in our eyes and our mind and our heart. And we're never far from it because everything, everything proceeds from what God said he himself and only himself could do for us and so we never leave it we hang on to it it's a very very source of our lives what does that look like how does that shape us how does it shape us where did we start we started with the birth of the church didn't we 2 Corinthians chapter 13 says, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? That the eternal God is in you? Do you not know? And in that passage, in that passage, Paul is asking believers to examine themselves. To see that they really are of the household of faith. Do you not know that God, that Jesus Christ is in you? And it's not just poetic language. It's not just metaphoric words. No, Jesus literally, literally, practically is dwelling within every single one of you blood-washed, blood-brought children of God. Christ is not merely on the outside. He's not just a helper that we go to in time of need. He dwells in us. Would you ponder that this week? Would you ponder that for the rest of your lives. Jesus is living in us and with us. Would you think about when he lived upon this earth? This is the one who lives within you. He lived this genuine human life upon this planet and he did it without sin. Without sin. How does that affect you, knowing you that he lives within you? His actions, his words, fully expressing all that God is. How does that affect you knowing that He lives within you? He died on the cross for our sins, He rose in victory from the dead, and in resurrection. He became, please hear this, and in resurrection he became the life-giving spirit who dwells within the children of God. What is it to be a church that is made alive by the indwelling, life-giving spirit of the eternal God? That's what I'm asking you to explore. And that's what I want us to grow in. Amen? Amen? Starts right here. If you have prepared yourself for communion, Father in heaven, oh Lord in heaven, who am I without you? Who are we without you? Something within me says, Lord, more importantly, who have you always been? And what have you always intended to do? And what is it that you always want to do in me and in us? Thank you that you've given us life eternal. Thank you that you've made us your dwelling place, that you've given us purpose and destiny. And that you have made it not just so, but you've made it possible, Lord. Your body lifted up to draw all men unto yourself. Your blood shed to wash us clean. But Lord, draw us deeper. Draw us deeper into the reality of what was achieved upon that cross. Lord God, as you yourself, experience what we deserve. And the horror of it, that we would be set free from it. That we would be delivered from the consequences of death and born again unto eternal life. Help us to start living that life right now, Lord Jesus. Make us alive, Lord God. Make us the church that shines forth the life of God to this world. Lord, give us the living testimony of a living God who has made a way, Father, through the shed blood of his Son. In Jesus' name, we thank you for his body. Let's take the bread together. In Jesus' name, we thank you for the blood that washes us clean. That we might come near and that you might dwell with us, and we might know the enormity of your love and the power of your forgiveness. That we might extol your glory and declare your goodness in all that we do and all that we say and everywhere that we go and every action, every action that proceeds from our lives to testify that the God of glory exists to be praised and honoured and lifted up, to be extolled by all, all of his people. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, let's take the cup. Amen.